0: It was in uh, 1905 that the first movie theater opened in America. At first, they were all called Nickelodeons. Comes from the Greek word odeon, meaning an enclosed theater and nickel, the price of admission. Movie theaters really took off in America. And with the rise of the film industry came the rise of a new social class, the celebrity. Before the advent of film, there really weren't a lot of national celebrities in America. There were times in American history, most people didn't even know what the president looked like. But the faces of celebrities started to capture the affection of the nation. These actors were larger than life. Their images literally being projected 20 feet tall on the the silver screen. They lived out adventures most people only dreamed of. Add to that the glamour of show business and a celebrity culture was born. These uh, emerging celebrities weren't just known. They were loved, adored, worshipped even. The masses started praising them, seeking their photograph or autograph. Their names were engraved in sidewalk stars. They were awarded with little golden statues. (laughs) Celebrities became like gods among men and started to act like it. It's always a rare story when someone says, I met an uh, an actor and he was really down to earth. Rather, it seems the fame and fortune goes to the head quickly. And they start to believe like they're the most important members of our society. But I think the celebrity culture that has emerged in America is maybe the the greatest reflection of uh, the self-centered heart of man. Ever since the fall, man wants essentially to be God. Satan's desire has become our desire to knock God off his throne, take our seat, and be worshiped by all. While only God is worthy, we, we want that glory for ourselves now. Only it's not really glory. We would call this vain glory. We want a glory that does not belong to us. And this is what drives people to want to see their name in lights. Like those at Babel want to see their name lifted up to the heavens, not God's name. And this is the idolatry of the self. And again, the idolatry of self has been in our hearts from the beginning, ever since the fall, all of us. But I think the advent of film and TV has just provided the the greatest expression for these desires to, to come out and bear fruit. That being said, things are even worse now. This worship of self is spread through our entire culture like a cancer, and it's no longer confined to a small celebrity class. Because just think, what if we could take a a movie camera and a movie theater and just put them in everyone's pocket and enable people to watch and share videos with everyone around the world at any time? Then anyone could become a celebrity. And that's exactly what's happened with the advent of cell phones plus social media. I mean, if the rise of movies was like our self-worship learning to fly, then social media is like a trip to the moon. And there's nothing inherently wrong with the medium of film or social media. They can certainly be used for a lot of good. But for a lot of people, what is the heart motive behind their social media engagement? For example, it seems vainglory, the desire to be loved, adored, praised, to be liked, followed, and subscribed to. Right? Young people, they don't care about going to Hollywood anymore, becoming a star. They they secretly wish to be influencers and YouTubers that they might gain a following. And this is the desire for praise we have in our hearts. Look, even Christians are not immune to this. Being made new in Christ, you, you should have new desires in your new hearts. You should generally want to live to the glory of God. You say that you sing that you believe that you want to honor God with your life, but we still have the sinful flesh and the desire therefore remains to, to take some of that praise for ourselves. And did not Satan tempt Jesus with that desire? He offered him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And Jesus rebuffed him saying, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Satan is not a worthy object of worship. God is God alone. But I'm afraid not all of us would be so strong in resisting that temptation. I mean, how prone we are to seek to be honored and be far more concerned with what others think of us than what God thinks of us. And this quest for vainglory can easily bleed over into the church and start affecting even our religious practices. So deceitful is sin that it can take genuine acts of worship like prayer and praise and turn them into vehicles for self-exaltation. So we must, therefore, be watchful, be on guard against the desires of our flesh, against the schemes of the evil one, because these temptations abound, and they're real, especially in our culture. And this is a warning we need to heed, and it's probably why the Lord himself gives it. It's a warning Christ gives us this morning in our text, which will be Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. So take your Bibles, open them now to Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. After a long time, we're finally beginning a new section in the Sermon on the Mount. It runs through chapter 6, verse 18. And here Jesus is going to warn his disciples three times over. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Beware religious hypocrisy where you do religious things not to exalt God, but to exalt self. Beware seeking praise and adoration from men. Why does Jesus feel the need to issue this warning three times over? Well, for when he knows the heart of man, he knows this is our inclination that we're prone to vainglory. But also he issues these warnings because such religious hypocrisy was already taking place among the spiritual leaders of Israel. The guys at the top had become like religious celebrities and they did all they did for their own namesake. When you consider the scribes and the Pharisees, the rabbis and the priests, these were the holiest men around. You just see a picture of devotion. They're praying three hours a day. They're fasting weekly, giving to the poor, memorizing the scriptures. They abstain from every unclean food. The common person would see them and think, wow, these these men are so close to God, so holy, so righteous. But the Lord is telling us, actually, they're not. They're not close to God. They're not holy or righteous. You might wonder, how how could that be? The answer is because they were doing all those things to bring glory to themselves, not to God. Their selfish heart motives spoiled all their deeds. They, They weren't serving God with their devotion, but themselves. They were merely actors on a stage playing the part of a religious devotee, but their goal was to see their names engraved in stars forever. But beware, Christ warns his disciples back then. It stands just as much for his disciples today. Beware, don't be like them. The true righteousness that characterizes his kingdom and and the people who belong to it uh, includes your heart and your motives, the reason for which you do all that you do. What we do matters. Our actions most definitely matter. God wants to see deeds of righteousness, but if done from impure motives, they count for nothing. The true disciple will do what is right for the right reasons, which ultimately is the glory of God. This is the message Jesus gives here in Matthew 6, verses 1 through 18. Again, we finally finished chapter 5, which was just jam-packed with gems. But a clear transition takes place at chapter 6, verse 1, in the Sermon on the Mount. Not that there were chapter divisions in the original message, but thematically a a shift clearly takes place. This sermon is all about the true righteousness that characterizes Christ's kingdom and all who belong to it. He spent a long time in chapter five showing what that righteousness looks like in contrast to the twisted teaching of the Jewish leaders. He says they're really just, just a bunch of hypocrites. They altered God's law, made it say what they wanted it to say, Christ corrects them, and he leads us in the true way of righteousness. Now, moving on, he's still going to form a contrast with the religious leaders, only this time he's going to focus on their twisted practices. Before he exposed the hypocritical teaching of the Jewish leaders, now he's going to expose the hypocritical practices of the religious leaders. And again, by contrast, he's going to lead us in the true way of righteousness. His teaching here, it all starts in verse 1, it all stems from verse 1. That's where he gives this big overarching principle that, that governs the whole section. And so as we get into this new chapter, if you want to know what it's about, what, what message he's giving, you need, to, you need to stop, study, make sure we understand the big principle. It's found in verse 1. So let's make that our first order of business. Start in Matthew 6, just cover verse 1 for now. He says this, It says, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your father who is in heaven. Verse one begins with a word of caution. Beware as a a present active imperative, meaning a continual command. Keep on watching out. This is an old nautical term referred to holding fast a ship's direction. If you're in rough waters and you let go of the steering wheel, that rudder will be tossed to and fro by the current. You'll you'll lose your direction real fast and get lost. Someone's got to hold fast that steering wheel and hold the bearing. Otherwise you'll lose your course. It's a picture of steadfastness. And that's what he's telling us to do. Watch out, be careful, take care to do something here. It's to not practice your righteousness before men. The subject of his warning here, it's not just righteousness, it's the practice of righteousness. You're you're doing the things you do. You might get the impression after reading Matthew 5 that Jesus only cares about the heart. That the only thing matters is the heart and what you actually do is irrelevant. That's not the case. It's not an either or, it is a both and. God very much cares about your deeds done in righteousness Deeds of righteousness, what we might call spiritual fruit. And one of the reasons God saved us is that we might thereafter go and bear fruit for him. Being made good trees by grace, as Christ will teach in Matthew 7, it's, it's our then in our new nature to bear good fruit. And God wants to see the fruit of holiness come from his people. Now, of course, we always clarify that we're not saved by religious deeds, Deeds of righteousness, good works. They don't even contribute an ounce to our salvation. You know, being defiled before salvation, Isaiah 64, 6 says, our supposed righteous deeds are like filthy rags before God. Just Everything we do is defiled. God's salvation comes purely as a gift, and it's based on Christ's finished work on the cross. Our works can't save us. Only Christ's work on the cross can actually save because on the cross, he paid our penalty, bore the wrath in our place. And by faith alone, can we access and receive what he did for us? We'd be forgiven, justified, made right. And it doesn't get any clearer than Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, which I trust most of you know, that for by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. Uh, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast, Now, we also add, though, that after being justified by faith, uh, not by works, God then says, now get to work, right? Not to save yourself, but the righteousness he works into us, he now wants to see us work out or live out. Hence, the next verse, Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. So I trust you all have that straight Jesus here, he's speaking to disciples, those who already have been made right by faith. Now he's instructing them on how to live out their righteousness with, with this warning. Watch out, verse 1. Now you also notice his instruction is not really about the manner of our righteous deeds. He doesn't just say, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men, stop. Now, his instruction, it's really about the motive of our righteous deeds. The whole warning is beware of practicing righteousness before men to be noticed by them. This is instruction on the motive of what you do. The real subject of this warning is the motive behind our deeds. And that matters supremely to God. That term for noticed, theamoai in Greek, meaning to wonder, to behold, to view attentively, is where... You want people to see you, to to cherish you. It's like you're an actor and you want the audience to be wowed by you, to throw flowers at your feet, to sing songs of your praise. And what do you know? The Greek word for theater is derived from this word to be noticed. Jesus is warning against righteousness as a show. Do people still do this? Yeah. Yeah. Of course, when others aren't around, or rather, when others are around, when there's an audience, they act, right? They act super godly. They're super Christian. They use all the right Christian words. They got the vocab down. They drop notes of their piety in conversation. I'm sorry, I couldn't make it to your birthday party. I was too busy volunteering at a soup kitchen, (laughs) right? They offer up long, lofty prayers before lunch. They give off every impression of being holy and devout. But what happens when the cameras are turned off? There's no audience. They're alone. There's nobody home. Behind the scenes, when they're not at church, they're just an entirely different person. You would not really even know they're a Christian. Just like an actor who is nothing like his character in real life, these people are nothing like biblical Christians in real life. Their devotion to God stops when the church door is closed behind them on a Sunday morning. And you can see how this relates to cultural Christianity, which we talked about and exposed last week and for many today that the practice of Christianity, it's nothing more than religious theater and they're, they're great actors. This happened in Christ's day as well. And the following verses, he gives us three examples of what it looked like back then. And it still can look like today. Three ways people practice their righteousness in order to be seen by others. The three examples, verses 2 through 14, the example of giving. Verses 5 through 15, the example of praying. Verses 16 through 18, the example of fasting. These were three of the most important religious deeds in Judaism. And they were meant to be genuine acts of devotion and worship to the Lord. But it's it's not enough to simply do the deeds, the action by itself does not produce true worship. The deed must be done. Don't get me wrong. God wants us to bear fruit, but it only becomes an act of worship. If the deed stems from the right heart motives, these deeds only become fruit when done for God's glory and honor, not your own. And as you can probably guess by now that the religious leaders of his day, they did all these things, but from impure motives. They did all these religious works, But so as, like verse 1 says, to be noticed by men. They wanted to be seen. Why? Because they wanted to be praised, valued, essentially worshipped. And if you fall into that same trap, well, then what? Like the rest of verse 1 says, you you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. I mean, take a genuine act of worship like prayer. I mean, that's something God himself values and prescribes God says he blesses and rewards such righteousness in various ways. But if done from impure self-seeking motives, it counts, as, it counts for nothing before him. Zero reward, zero benefit. Such prayers are disqualified as true worship. They'll never return as a blessing on your head. The only reward you'll get is just the cheap applause of men that you were after. But I can tell you, having grown up and spent First half of my life, seven miles from Hollywood, if it taught me anything about celebrity, it's that the, man, uh, the, the applause of man it is fickle, it is short-lived, it is, is vain. You might be loved by all today, but tomorrow you'll be dropped and, and just as worthless and meaningless as everyone else. But look, beware living life and doing righteousness for the praise of man, which really is for the praise of self really for the praise of self, but we're called to live entirely for the praise of the Lord. And what Jesus says here in verse one, he wants to sink in verse one, the overarching principle. He wants to drill it into our hearts so much so that he gives these three examples just to, well, illustrate the principle. Verse one is a theme verse, this root principle, but now springing out of it are three stems Three shoots, three examples now showing us, giving us a, a visible representation of what it looks like to practice your righteousness to be seen by men. Again, these examples are giving, praying, fasting. With the rest of our time this morning, we're going to turn a corner now and just focus on the first example, giving, because we want to take to heart the Lord's instructions. And let's do that now. This first example, giving, With each of these three examples, he uses the exact same outline. Each time, it begins with a warning. Don't perform your religious deeds to be seen by men. And follows it up with a rebuke. If you do, that's the only reward you'll get. You'll have no reward with your father in heaven. Then he follows up with a command. Instead, perform your religious deeds in secret and finishes with a promise that God sees and will reward what is done in secret. Same outline three times. It's like he made the point of verse one. He's hammering it over and over again that, that we get it. We get the point. So without further ado, let's consider now really how we need to take care not to practice our giving before men to be seen by others. How we need to take care not to practice first our giving before men to be seen by others. And we're going to use Christ's outline. So we start first with The warning. Let's move into verse two. Now the warning he says, so when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. The first example, Jesus gives features alms giving, which was one of the main pillars of Judaism. The phrase Give to the poor literally just means showing mercy. This can refer to any act, any show of mercy, although it came to predominantly be used of giving to the poor, helping those in need. The Old Testament is rife with commands for God's people to care for the poor and needy in their midst, the widow, the orphan, the stranger in the land. This is meant to be a reflection of God's own heart, his care for the least of these. For example, Deuteronomy verse 15, verse 11 or chapter 15 Verse eleven says, For the poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore I command you, saying, You shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy and poor in your land. And you'll notice that Jesus, in giving this example in verse two, uh, he simply assumes that his disciples are going to carry on this practice. He does not say, If you give to the poor, but when you give to the poor. It's merely assumed that you. You can, you will, you should carry on this practice of showing God's love to the needy, giving to those in need. The Lord certainly expects us to carry this on. But the point he's making is that it's not enough to just throw some money at the poor. The mere act of giving does not equal a righteous deed, contrary to what the Jews believed at the time. Many Jews believed that salvation was easier for the rich because they had more money and therefore they could give more to the poor and merit more of God's favor. And over time, especially after the temple was destroyed, deeds like almsgiving started to replace animal sacrifices as a means of atoning for your sins. Listen to some Jewish apocryphal writings. Uh, There's a book called Tobit, Tobit 4.10 says, almsgiving delivers from death and keeps you from going into the darkness. Tobit 12.9 says, almsgiving saves from death and purges away every sin. A book called Sirach 3.30 says, as water extinguishes a blazing fire, so almsgiving atones for sin. It's actually very similar to Catholic thought today, that uh, as if a mere act of saying a prayer or giving a gift, will contribute to merit before God, saving merit. Pope Leo the Great once declared, quote, by prayer we seek to appease God, by fasting, we extinguish the lust of the flesh, and by alms, we redeem our sins, end quote. But this is not true. There's not a single deed we can do to atone for our sins, to contribute to our salvation. Again, it's only Christ's work on the cross that can atone. And Jesus here, though, he's teaching us as believers, our deeds, they matter, but if the motives are wrong, then they don't matter. They're spoiled. It's like writing a check, but forgetting to sign it. It's void. It's worthless. And do you really think God would be honored by giving to the poor that that's actually selfishly motivated? It's like baking a cake, but you're using spoiled, nasty, like far rotten eggs and all the other ingredients may be fresh. The finished product looks like a cake. You put all the frosting on looks great. But one bite, you would know that the whole thing is foul and must be thrown away. And Jesus clarifies in verse two, exactly what spoils the otherwise good deed of giving. He says, it's, it's the motive of being honored by men. Verse two, to be honored. That comes from the Greek word doxadzo, which is derived from the word for glory, doxa. And literally it's saying their giving was motivated by this desire to be glorified by men. And that is the same term used to speak of glorifying God all over the Bible, the New Testament. This is a term of supreme adoration, which, which purely belongs to God alone, but they want a little for themselves. Jesus reveals how for some that their giving was not driven by mercy or helping others, meeting the needs of the poor. It really was to meet their own need, their need for vainglory. They did not give to honor the name of God, but to honor their own name. And you can't buy God's favor. You could give a billion dollars to the poor and it would count as nothing before God if it was motivated for selfish reasons, self-aggrandizement. So the warning stands, don't let the good deed of giving be soured by the evil motive of being praised by man. But to drive this warning home even further, Jesus adds some color by giving us an illustration of what such self-serving giving might look like. And so it might look like this again, verse two. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. Such a vivid metaphor. And can you just imagine bringing church Sunday morning, the offering is being passed out. The piano is playing quietly in the background. Someone new comes. They stand up during the offering. They're dressed in fine clothes. They pull out a a trumpet and just give it a blast. (laughs) The people around them cover their ears. It's deafening. Then he takes his little check, drops it in the offering plate, and sits down. I mean, such an ostentatious show. It only has one motive behind it. It's to be seen by others. And Even if he gave a million dollars, we would not be impressed, and certainly uh, God would not be impressed. Now, there is no ancient Jewish record saying that the Jews actually did this. We have no indication the Pharisees would actually blow a trumpet before they gave to call attention to themselves. It's entirely possible. It's possible Jesus is using hyperbole just to make a vivid point. There's actually a third option, though. Outside the temple, there was a row of 13 collection chests. Each was for designated giving. And they each had a shofar or temple, or I'm sorry, trumpet-shaped opening, uh, like a funnel, really wide at the top, narrow at the bottom, made it easy to throw in coins, hard to steal. And so it's very possible that the expression, sounding the trumpet, could be referring to just throwing coins in as loudly as you can to make sure people hear and notice how much you're giving. It's like dumping all of your change in one of those coin star machines, like we heard for miles, <laughs> and people take notice. We don't know for sure what he means, but we do know for sure, or I I should say, we don't know for sure what's behind this illustration, but we do know for sure what he means. The point is don't give in such a way as to call attention to yourself on purpose. There are countless ways to do that from blowing a trumpet to purposely pulling out a huge wad of cash during the offertory, making sure everyone around you sees it to not dropping your check until the person next to you is looking from big to small. Any way you give on purpose to be seen and noticed by others, it, it voids that deed as any deed of righteousness, any fruitful deed before God. I can't help it. It came to my mind. It reminds me of a, a Seinfeld episode, which was the sitcom of my youth in the 90s. And the, the characters, they're all terrible people. And the worst is George Costanza. But in one episode, he was ordering a, a calzone from a shop. And he wanted the shop owner to think he was a good guy. So he took a little money, put it in the tip jar. But the second he put the money in the jar, the owner looked away and didn't see it. Happened the same thing happened on the second day. Puts the money in the tip jar. He, he looks away and doesn't see it. And the third day he goes, buys a calzone. Puts the money in the tip jar and lo and behold, he turns away and doesn't see it. And George reasons it's time. He's going to take a little money out and try again when he's looking. But the second he puts his hand in the jar and takes the money out, the owner turns around, sees him, and thinks he's stealing from the tip jar, thinks he's a terrible person and bans him from the shop. It is pretty funny, but it's also the perfect illustration of giving for the only reason of being seen by others. We laugh, but in what subtle ways do we actually do the same thing? We give really in our heart to be seen by others. Now, back then, we know Jesus was talking specifically about the scribes and Pharisees, He says, whether in the synagogues or in the streets, that these were the guys who made sure they had an audience. For whatever they did, we're going to see the whole chapter. They had an audience before they did anything. Because uh, Gospel of John says they loved the approval of men. But look, such self-serving giving, it's not limited to them. Christ is warning his disciples because it, it can happen to us. We are prone to this as well. And if you join them, if you do what they do, what does that make you? It makes you an actor. Or as he puts it in verse 2, hypocrite. I've been picking on actors on purpose this morning because if you didn't know, the Greek word for hypocrite is the word for actor. It's the ancient word for actor. The hypocrite was an actor. The ancient Greek actors, they did not wear makeup. They wore masks to represent the character they played. And literally the ancient word for hypocrite was one who wears a mask one who is pretending to be someone he is not. And you watch a play or a movie, you know that person is playing a part. That's not really who they are, good or bad. That's not really their character. They go home, they take off the mask, they be who they are, that's fine. But you see, the problem with these religious hypocrites of Christ's day and today was that they really never took off their masks. They just were always pretending whenever someone was around that that's who they were. They were always pretending to be someone else, always trying to appear as this super religious devotee in the eyes of others. They claimed and acted as if they were so righteous, but Jesus, he unmasks them. That's why they hate him. Every time he sees them, he just rips their mask off and shows that in their hearts that they don't love God. They're not serving God. They're serving themselves. They only love themselves. They're just actors. They're they're hypocrites. Now, we know it's common today to hear non-Christians take issue with Christianity and say, you know, the church is just filled with a bunch of hypocrites. And there's two responses to that. The first is to let them know, like, hey, there's always room for one more, as we commonly say. But secondly, to quote R.C. Sproul, you can say, quote, you know, what those outside fail to see is that a Christian is only a hypocrite if he says that he does not sin, end quote. I mean, our claim is never that we're sinless or perfect in practice. We're forgiven in Christ. We're made righteous in him. And now being redeemed, we seek to be like him and grow in his image. But the true hypocrite is the one who claims he's supremely holy, acts as if he's the most devout person around. He seeks to justify himself with countless religious deeds, but his life does not really line up. His heart is still corrupt. His deeds are hollow and therefore his righteousness is vain. We need to heed Christ's warning. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. And if you do, you get the rebuke. And that's number two. Secondly, after the warning comes, the rebuke. Finishing verse two. He says, truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. Now, Christ's rebuke of hypocritical giving is brief, but to the point. He will repeat it three times, the same thing three times. They have their reward in full. They have their reward in full. Why do actors perform? Some do it for the paycheck, but many do it because they they love the applause. It feeds the ego. They want the love of the crowd, the adoration. And so it goes for these religious actors. They're doing it for the applause, for the reward of veneration that they'll receive. And they'll, they'll likely get it. They'll get that reward. Most people, the, the common man back then, today, not knowing the way of true righteousness, will see their little show of righteousness and be impressed and think, wow, they're, they're so holy. They're so devout. They'll cheer them on. They'll bow down before them. They'll stand up when they enter the room. They will give them the veneration that they are after. And that's it though. That, that's as much of a reward that these hypocrites will ever get for what they do. They will likely win the favor of man that they're after, but they will never win God's favor. He's not impressed by these deeds. He's repulsed when people take his name for their own selfish gain. When deeds of mercy are just thinly veiled deeds of vanity, you can expect no reward from God. This is not the way to give. The rebuke is brief, but he goes on and tells us what is the way. Third, the command. Moving along, third, the command in verse three. He says, but when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So that, verse four, your giving will be in secret. Now, each time with each of these three examples that Jesus will give, he issues a command to then help explain what true righteousness will look like from pure motives. And here he's telling us to do the opposite. What is the opposite of giving to be seen by others? Giving in secret. Giving not to be seen by others. To communicate this, he employs a proverbial expression. To not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. I'm pretty sure our, our hands are connected to our minds. They're not autonomous, but it's obviously a figure of speech intended to communicate secrecy. It's as if you're keeping your giving secret, not just from others, but from yourself. Now, again, that's not literally possible. You can't write checks blindfolded, I guess, and you still know what amount you're writing down. But the point is that as you give, you're you're keeping your selfish motives out of it. You're not letting the twisted desires of your flesh have a seat at the table for when, where, and how you give. You're not letting that enter the equation. You're to take the whole notion of self out of the equation of your giving. Who will see me? What will they think of me? What do I want them to think of me? All such questions should be erased from your mind when you give. These merely come from your flesh. We're called to continually crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. Don't try and be some spiritual celebrity. Don't don't try and show off. If you're going to give, and you should, give from pure motives, which is to show mercy to the needy and to show honor to God's name. Now to add some further clarity, Jesus is not commanding us to give in secret per se, because you have to remember his teaching here. It's not really about the manner of our righteousness, but the motives of our righteousness, the motives of our deeds. He's, he's not commanding clandestine charity. Like the only way you can give to the poor is you know, slip a little money in their pocket under the cover of night. Some churches have missed this distinction and they take Jesus to mean that giving, uh, He's dealing with the manner of giving. Giving must be in secret. So during their service, they'll have no offertory, no, no time of giving or collecting. They might have a little black box or giving box in the back or in the foyer. And they expect people to just at their leisure, come drop their offering in their sight unseen. And look, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that practice. I just don't think that's what Jesus is getting at. You know, for one, people can still find ways to give ostentatiously in, in an offering box. They can still manage to be noticed if they really want to. Maybe not by the whole congregation, but, but by enough people. Right? You, you only drop your check in the box in the lobby when the lobby is full. Make sure someone's around to see you. Or maybe you, you save that big year-end check and you, you on purpose leave it slightly out of the box for all to see. There are ways. But you have to realize this teaching, this is a heart issue, a motives issue. The Lord doesn't actually regulate the manner or the mechanism by which we give to help the needy or to serve the church. God looks at the heart. He seeks pure motives where where giving is done for his glory to further his kingdom purposes. It's actually impossible to try and live righteously as he prescribes entirely in secret. In fact, we're not supposed to in the same sermon. Did we not cover chapter five, verse 16? What does that say? Go back to Matthew 5, 16. Speaking of our our fruit, our deeds of righteousness, how we are to act in the world, a dark world. Let the light shine. Matthew 5, 16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Is this a contradiction? By no means, because it's all about motive. The Lord wants us to live publicly, to be seen, to witness him, his holiness, his righteousness to the world around us, to let the light shine in word, in deed. He says, let them see your good works. But don't miss the point. What qualifies deeds of righteousness is not geography. It's not about where you are. It's about where your heart is. It's not about the location of you. It's about the location of your heart. And again, the point here is Matthew 6.1. What's the main point? Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be seen by them. But if, however, you're, you are divested of selfish gain and vainglory, you're not concerned with, with what others think of you at all. You're, you're giving to help the needy, to serve the church, to honor God. And others happen to see you give. You've done no wrong. This is about your heart motive. Rather, let those people see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Whether in public or in secret, that's the same motive for everything we do. That's the motive for right giving. That's the motive for right living. If you know Christ by faith here, we, we all should be convicted of this. And ex- and reminded, we need, we need to frequently examine ourselves and all that we do. Ensure all you do comes from a heart. Of worship. And when it doesn't, repent. Repent, be restored, be renewed. You grab hold of that steering wheel and get back on course steadfast to, to guard your heart and ensure you're doing all to the glory of God. And then offer your gifts, your offerings, your praise as true worship. And when you do that, you receive, lastly, uh, the promise. Number four is the promise. He concludes in verse four and says, Your father... Who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Just because you're, you're trying to give unseen doesn't mean it will go unnoticed. Jesus promises that your Father will see what is done in secret. When you try to, when you try to be seen by man, God will ignore you. But when you try to be ignored by man, God will see you. Now, of course, God always sees, nothing is hidden from his sight. His vision even pierces the motives of our heart. But again, that, that's what this whole thing is about. Give with hearts of worship. That's where you recognize you have all this money because he has blessed you. He's caused the increase. He's given you every opportunity you've ever had. He's given you every breath you've ever had. And so now you're, you're happy to give, to care for others, to bless the church. Just It's a small, tangible way you can show your honor, your thanksgiving to God. And as you do that, Jesus says, God will reward you. There's no need to get hung up on the, the notion of rewards, teaching on rewards. It's all over the new Testament. It never detracts from God's grace. It rather accentuates God's grace. Look, no one is boasting in heaven because of all of their accomplishments. No one's going to be up there showing off what they did, their spiritual trophy case. Everything we do is ultimately by grace. And, Whatever these rewards look like, you can be sure they're going to be trophies of God's grace. And that like the 24 elders in Revelation 4 who who cast down their crowns before him, we will return all praise to the Lord. But look, neither Jesus nor Matthew nor Paul or the apostles have any problem teaching on rewards. And none of them believe it's unspiritual to anticipate the father's rewards when done in a spirit of humility and dependence. And also notice, Jesus, he's not actually trying to motivate us to give here with a promise of rewards. He doesn't do that. It's not like all those Arbor Day letters we get in the mail, Arbor Foundation, that says, you know, if you would just give, we'll give you all these prizes. We'll give you a little trinket. We'll give you a calendar. Like they're offering rewards to motivate you to give. That's not what Jesus is doing. The motive has already been made clear. It's to honor God, not self. But Jesus is reminding us how God is just so good to those who love him, who who strive to be like him. Remember, by his grace, what we learned in Matthew 5, 48, the verse before, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, knowing the father sees you. And really, this right here, you know, relating to God as your heavenly father, it's the secret to the secret of living righteously. What is behind all false self-righteousness? It is ignoring God the Father and seeking the praise of man, which really is the praise of self. But what is behind true righteousness? It's where you ignore the praise of man and the praise of self, and you seek God, the praise of God. And that happens when you daily, constantly live as if you're in God's presence, which by the way, you are always and God being our father, if you didn't know, it becomes the dominant theme here in chapter six. He only mentioned God the father a few times before, but now a dozen times he's going to relate or speak of us in relation to God as our father. After calling us, Matthew five forty eight to be like our heavenly father, he's going to go on in chapter six to explore what life looks like for the disciple as he simply lives life under God as his ever present father. And really forgetting that you have a father in heaven is really, I think, a root behind all of our sins. But how often do we forget that? That that we have a father in heaven, a God in heaven, who's with us, who sees us, who watches all we do. We're in his presence, that he and his son are abiding in us through the spirit whom he has given to us. How quickly do we fail to remember that our main purpose in life is to be pleasing to him. 2 Corinthians 5.9, therefore we have it as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. And isn't this the example the Lord Jesus himself left for us? Here's God the Son incarnate living on earth as a man. But he came living as if he was constantly in the presence of his Father, which of course he was, but he came to do the will of his Father. He came to speak the words of his Father. He came to work the works of his father. Never did he perform a miracle just to show off, but all us to glorify his father who is in heaven, to testify of him. Hence John seven eighteen, Jesus said, he's seeking. He came seeking the glory of the one who sent him. And now that's supposed to be us. We are to be like him seeking the glory of the one who, who saved us, who made us his children. I mean, why are we, so concerned with what others think of us. All day, every day, we can just be so concerned with what others think of us. But the praise and affirmation of man is so cheap and worthless compared to the praise of God, which he gives by his grace to those who follow him. And what else matters than that? If you could just constantly live under the awareness of God's presence, your father's presence every moment, that would have such a purifying effect. I mean, his gaze is like the fire of the sun. It burns away all the impurities, even in our heart, all wrong motives will be sanctified. And just think how that would affect our giving. If we need to stay within the example of Jesus gives, then you would give millions of dollars, if you have it, to help cancer research at that special hospital, but you wouldn't demand they name a building after you. Right, You would donate some money to help that person who lost their home, but then you wouldn't post about it on social media bragging. You would volunteer to feed the homeless, but you wouldn't slip it into every conversation looking for pats on the back. You would give to meet the ministry needs of your local church, but you would never go out of your way to, to make sure other people know it. But applications are plenty. Examples abound. More are coming from the Lord. We need to see this teaching applied to how we pray, how we fast, how we do everything. And that's coming up. But already this is enough for us to to take to heart, to digest, to consider and check your heart. Is it fully given over to your father who is in heaven? Who sent his son to redeem you? If you would just remember that and remember him, it's more than enough to move you to live and to give for him. You would bear real spiritual fruit where you're living, you're giving, you're doing all things for the praise and the honor of his name, not your own. Let us always be a people who live for the honor, the praise, the glory for our father who is in heaven. As those elders bowed down and cast their crowns before the throne in Revelation 4, they exclaimed, all worthy, all glory, all honor belongs to you. Let's make that our prayer as well. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, that that is our heart's cry for those who know you and have tasted and seen that you are good, tasted and seen your glory. And just a glimpse, yet we know and are convicted, You, you alone are worthy. You made us. You made all things. You remade us. You sent your son, Christ, to die on the cross, to rise from the dead, to pay our entire penalty that we might be justified apart from all the things we can do. As unworthy, undeserving sinners, you You showed a greater love in doing it all for us. And we receive that gift purely by faith. You've saved us. You've redeemed us. You've adopted us, justified us, reconciled us, that the list goes on. We are supremely blessed. How can we then not live for you? What do we have to gain? We're seeking your glory, your kingdom now. And there in in your masterful design, you placed our joy. We're actually most blessed and fulfilled when we are safe in your arms, living in your kingdom purposes And exalting you. So purify the hearts of your people this morning for we need this warning. I need this warning. It's in our hearts to to steal that glory, to seek it for ourselves, uh, that the pursuit of vanity can still be real. So guard us, set a guard on our hearts through your word, through the spirit. Help us to examine ourselves daily and hold fast the course to examine our heart motive behind all we do to ensure we're rendering true heart worship and we long for a reward still by grace, but how you will bless us here and hereafter, those who generally seek you, seek the honor of your name. And that certainly characterize us here at this church and all your people. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.